Welcome to MTV's The Stakes, a rundown of the week's news without the talking heads. Consider us the Brussels sprouts in your media diet, but like wrapped in bacon and fried in duck fat and then covered with cheese and drizzled with sriracha and yeah, you get it. I'm Julianne Ross, deputy editor of Politics and News here at MTV and filling in for your host, Holly Anderson. This week is all about action, so let's get into it. Coming up on the show, we have Anna Marie Cox looking at IndivisibleGuide.com, a site that shares practical strategies for resisting the Trump agenda. The point is that we we have to stick together to stop the, the this Trump agenda, and and so we don't have specific policy recommendations. What we're, we're saying is that we have to just stop. We have to stop the harm. Then we have two organizations using text messaging and mobile apps to empower families in need. The food stamp robot saved a lot of people a lot of time. But first. The Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee is a social justice leadership and training school that played a major role in the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks was trained here right before the Montgomery bus boycott. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to visit students. And it was here where the song We Shall Overcome became a civil rights anthem. Highlander continues to be a space for movement building and grassroots organizing in the South. Now, they've recently appointed Ashley Henderson to be co-director of the center, the first queer black woman to hold that position. MTV news writer Marcus Ellsworth talked to Henderson about her work. I'm Marcus Ellsworth with MTV News, and today I am speaking with Ashley Henderson, who is the one of the new co-directors for the Highlander Center, and also is the first black woman to hold that position at the center. How are you doing today, Ash? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, up front, full disclosure, Ash, you and I have a long history together. Oh, We've way been, back. been friends for quite a while. <laughs> right. We've organized together in Chattanooga. We've also shared a stage together a few times <laughs> uh, here in town for various reasons, both for fun and for causes. Yep, that's right. But today we want to talk to you about the Highlander Center and in your position there and what it means to be the first black woman to to be a co-director for the center. So let's start there. Um, so you coming into this position, uh, and historically the center does have a long history of working with powerful black women like Rosa Parks and organizing in black communities, but to hold that position as the first black woman directing it? What's that like? Yeah, it is It is a great privilege um, and a blessing and a great responsibility. <laughs> it's in some ways, you know, inheriting 85 years worth of, of history, of a legacy that is, is much, much bigger than any one person in that seat. And I come into it as a, a Black woman that was raised in the working class, who is from the very state where Highlander was birthed. Um, and so I take that that responsibility very seriously. But in this political moment, it's also really incredibly exciting because I think in a in a moment where, you know, in, in, in so many different ways, Black communities in the South are under attack. I think it's a political statement that Highlander is like, you know what, we need some folks in the, in the seat that are actually really committed to racial justice and understand what it means to be an- impacted by anti-Black racism and white supremacy. So I'm coming in really excited about the ongoing work that Highlander's been doing for years, uh, you know, giving money to, to Black communities in the South that are doing work at the Nexus of Art and Activism through the We Shall Overcome Fund or, you know, supporting cultural organizers that are, you know, taking our Black cultural practices and mixing it with how they do organizing work or all the different ways um, that Highlander has been engaging with Black communities, even in the time that I've known of the Highlander Center. Um, I'm excited to be coming into that to 
both encourage the continuation of that work, but also work with the staff to create some new opportunities in a political climate where we're going to have to if we want to be able to survive the next four years. So I'm excited to be doing that as the first Black woman ED, um, and I'm excited to be calling into that work. Uh, Alan Still, who's going to be the co-director with me, um, who's a great, great man and is committed wholeheartedly to racial justice. President Obama just gave his farewell address. Yeah, he did. And in that he, there was a particular phrase he threw out there that stuck with me. Lace up your shoes and start organizing. <laughs> start organizing. I'm sure that in the context of what he was talking about, he's talking about organizing by, you know, running for office, signing petitions, engaging on that level of electoral politics. Yep. But when, say you, as someone who is working with the Highlander Center, what do you think of when you say with that phrase, lace up your shoes and get organizing. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen, especially in the last five years since Trayvon Martin was murdered, and then definitely in the last two years since Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, we've seen more and more people sort of wake up to the real injustices that are happening in the United States. Toni Morrison has this great quote where she talks about how these systems of oppression, I think she's particularly talking about racism and white supremacy, how those systems of oppression dismember us. They dismember us from our families, from our communities, um, from our traditional ways of being, our culture. Um, and I think the work of an organizer is to remember, right? To to pull together communities, to pull together a, a chosen family, to you know pull together the systems that'll actually be able to sustain us in our places. Um, and and I think that there are a lot of people that are doing that. And so I'm I'm excited in this political moment because it doesn't feel like there's an absence of that infrastructure. It feels like the Southern Freedom Movement is alive and well, the Black liberation struggle, the movement for Black lives is alive and well. I do support and always will, and I think the Highlander Center always will support the work of supporting organizers that are doing that work on the front lines. How important is it to have that that work centered in the South? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think a lot of people, you think of the South, they think of the South as simply being a place of oppression a region of oppression, and as a Southern, Southerner myself, yeah. I know that that's not the entire truth yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, but having that work focused here, yeah. built on, built here, bringing people from around the country and around the region to a space to do that, do that work from a Southern perspective. How yeah. important is that? It's, I mean, you know, you know, the W.B. Du Bois quote that says, as goes the South, so goes the nation. Like, we believe that. And I think that We've also seen that in any time of political turmoil in the United States, you know, there some of the some of the most uh, successful fight back has come from the, the southern soil that we sit on. In a in a moment where I think more and more people are recognizing the sort of under-resourced South um, and sort of playing it like people in the South just don't like have good politics, I think it's actually an erasure that like Fannie Lou Hamer is Southern. Mm-hmm. Ella Baker is Southern, right? Martin Luther King is Southern. So I think that it's it's a different kind of movement work, um, but it's critical to the, the sustainability of, of the work on the ground. And I think we really uh, support the notion that came from Fannie Lou Hamer that like none of us are free until all of us are free um, and and really believe strongly that, that we're stronger together. So Highlander is a place where we get to come together. It's I think about it as a, as like a home for movement people in the South. And there's just not a lot of regions, and it's especially the South, where we can say, like, movement has 160-some-odd acres, close to 200 acres of land that is ours, and we are not going to cede it, right? We're going to use it, 
we're going to support it and uh, and it's yours. I, I tell people all the time that when I first went to Highlander, you know, I got to participate in the 75th anniversary, the homecoming of, of Highlander. And they do it every year, have a big homecoming in the fall around the UT Knoxville uh, football game schedule. Wonderful. And uh, I guess we'll see you out there on the front lines. Can't wait. We'll see you there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Marcus. That was MTV news writer Marcus Ellsworth talking with Ashley Henderson, co-director of Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee. December, a Google Doc called the Indivisible Guide started making its way around the internet in an effort to bring liberals together to stop the Trump agenda. It was written by about 30 former congressional staffers who saw how the Tea Party stalled the Obama administration using a small but active group of people. The Indivisible Guide is easy to understand and gives practical tips for how each of us can start to make a difference now. There's a chapter on how your member of Congress thinks, there's advice on local advocacy methods, and how to organize a group in your community. MTV senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox talked to Angel Padilla, one of the writers of The Indivisible Guide, to learn more. So we're going to talk about The Indivisible Guide, which is something that you put together with some other folks that are uh, veterans of the Hill. How did you guys come together for this? Were you in touch before the election and talking about your concerns? Or was this something that was really prompted the night of? What was What's the story about how you decided to write this together? So I think a lot of this started the night of. A lot of us were in the same room watching the returns come in on November 8th. And we just couldn't believe what we were watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and the results were shocking. And a lot of us just went into immediate despair. And I actually remember not being able to sleep. And I ended up talking to Leah, who's one of the other people that, that's been working on this. I think it was like four in the morning and we were like, what do we do now? I think the impetus for this was uh, a conversation that Ezra and Leah had in Austin when they were uh, visiting family for Thanksgiving. And they talked about how there was a need for just some guide to help people who wanted to do more, you know, but didn't really understand Congress, um, something that would give them the resources to actually make a difference, uh, a way to influence members of Congress. And so that's how that started. And then in the weeks following Thanksgiving, there were a number of, of conversations, meetings, drafting, editing, and this guide came together in really a, a few weeks. And is this guide in part based, I mean, on your personal experience in dealing with the Tea Party, or is it more based on your observations of the Tea Party? It was It was both. If you were on the Hill back in, in 2009, 2010, there was no way you didn't have to deal with the, deal with the Tea Party in some way. <laughs> um, I mean, they, they descended, uh, you know, here in, in D.C. and visited their members of Congress. And we had, you know, I was in Congressman Gutierrez's office, and we had Tea Party years that, that would come by and harass us. Um, and so did everyone else who worked on the Hill. Uh, so it was, in part, our, our direct experience with, um, with Tea Party groups, but then also just watching them, right? There were a number of big rallies in D.C. There was the one in March 20, 2010. This, that's the one that I remember most vividly, and it was where it was the ACA vote, and there was a big, um, you know, Tea Party, like a bunch of the groups came down to D.C., and they went to, to their member of Congress's office and basically threatened them. And there were a lot of other acts of just kind of basically violence that we saw and that we heard about. I mean, I, mm. I remember reading, I didn't see this directly, but I remember reading about Tea Partiers who were spitting on members of Congress, uh, former civil rights leaders that were getting spit on. Um, it was, it was absolutely, it was, it was insane. 
and to be clear, when you when you say that we should adopt the tactics of the Tea Party, I'm guessing you don't mean the spit on people <laughs> you disagree with. Exactly. Pat. I mean, I think we're very clear in the in the guide that while there are some useful lessons to learn from the Tea Party, we definitely do not support uh, or espouse any of those really sort of nasty things that they did, like the threats of violence, actual violence, um, the hatred. We, we don't think that's useful at all. We don't support it, obviously. What we're, what we're talking about are those, those really useful strategies that they used. There, there were really two key strategic decisions that the Tea Party movement made, and that's the, the first one is that they, they worked locally. They focused on their own member of Congress. Uh, they didn't try to reach every, every senator or every member of Congress. It was really their representatives, and they focused on, on them. The second strategic decision that they made was to be defensive. They basically said, we're going to say no to everything. Um, they, they weren't pushing any particular policy uh, goals. They were just trying to stop the Obama administration. So that those are the things that we think are, are most useful at this point. When we're talking about a Trump administration that's really going to go after vulnerable communities and, and try to undermine the progress that we made over the last uh, eight years, you know, we don't want we don't want to give them an inch. And so we think those are the those are the useful tactics. Do you have any concern in the activating this kind of defensive and obstructionist tactic? We're just sort of doing to them what they did to us and that it'll create just a cycle of where all people, all parties do is obstruct each other. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the the, the questions that we've gotten a number of times about, you know, are we just, you know, how how long like long term um, is this the kind of Washington we want to see? But but what Mm -hmm. we're focused on is is, again, I mean, I can't stress this enough. It's, It's protecting the, the groups and communities that, that we that we care about. And so if this does mean that it's harder for Congress to to pass, you know, legislation, then that that's okay if if that legislation is going to undermine access and rights of of, of people and communities. Um, again, I just that's that's what matters, right? I mean, when people when, we're, when right. we're talking about people losing their health care, about families being torn apart and, and deported, um, when we're, we're talking about undermining reproductive rights, I mean, that's that's what matters. And this this Republican Congress and this president, this incoming president, mm-hmm. is is going to go after these things, and we have to fight um, to protect them. I guess one question I have, though, is that is when we look at the Tea Party, I mean, I think that you energize some people on the left by mentioning the Tea Party as a model because people are like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I want to use that. Those I was angry about those tactics and that feels good to me to like use those tactics um, for this agenda for for I actually I maybe I should make clear like what you're proposing is not an agenda. Actually, <laughs> it is it is defensive. Yes. There is not an agenda in the pages. No, that's that's actually key, right? I mean, there are, you know, we're called indivisible, or we, we, we decided to use indivisible because we think that you need to, we all need to stick together, right? A, an attack on one is an attack on all. And even though we might all work on a number of different policy issues, things that matter to, to me might not matter to, you know, my neighbor necessarily, not not immediately. Um, the point is that mm-hmm. we we have to stick together to stop the, the this Trump agenda. And, and so we don't have specific policy recommendations. What we're, we're saying is that we have to just stop. We have to stop the harm. Um, and so we, we don't offer those specific. And I want to get at least pay you know, some attention to the specific tactics that we're talking about here. You, you talked about uh, they folk, the general themes of the Tea Party was to be local and to organize 
directing their attention at specific members of Congress. And I think some people might be surprised by just how simple and kind of low commitment, in a way, some of your recommendations are. You want to go through a few of them right yeah, now? Yeah, and so I think that's that's part of the problem, right? We kept hearing from from different groups around the country that, or, or friends from around the country early on about how they just didn't understand how Washington works. And so, you know, based on our experience, when we were on the Hill, we saw that little things really do matter, right? And people were really directing their energies in the, in the wrong places, right? I mean, things that we saw that we saw since the November elections were things like a lot of social media activity, a lot of online petitions that are, are being sent to, to all members of Congress. And what, what we saw when we were on the Hill is that, you know, what, what members really care about is getting elected. They care about their constituents. And so if they're hearing from their constituents, then it's going to make a much bigger impact than whether or not you are signing on to this big national petition. So let's just take for an example. Um, if someone is right now listening to us and, and getting fired up, um, what should he or she do after they stop listening to this podcast? What would you say? What would we say is a, a thing they could do in the next 30 minutes that would be helpful? Sure. So um, if they are not part of a group, right, they can and they want to start a group, they can just come to our website and then register a group. And then we'll try to connect them with people that are in their in their same area. Uh, aside from that, I mean, you know, everyone, you know what we saw? We saw people that were already getting together to talk about this. They probably have been talking to their friends or neighbors about how 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 scared they are about what's coming in the next year, in the next four years. They can easily just, you know what, just pull people together. You know, Martin Luther King weekend's coming up. Just pull people together, talk about what matters, and set a plan, right? Like, we are going to go talk to a member of Congress next week or the week after to tell them that we oppose some of these issues that are coming down from the Trump administration. Or even I was going to say, you know what, you can find a member for your member of Congress online on your phone right now. (laughs) And there are already things to be protesting, right? There's the Steve Bannon as um, counsel of the president. Um, There's the appointment of Jeff Sessions uh, or the nomination of Jeff Sessions to attorney general. Like if you are someone who cares about this stuff, you can turn off the podcast. (laughs) Not that you should. You should wait till it's over. Um, look up the number of your member of Congress and make a call. And you, that is an effective thing to do. You will be doing something that counts, you know, a thousand times more than signing an online petition or, or, or tweeting, yep, right? Yep. Just call call your, your, your member's office and tell them that you're a constituent and that you care and you, about, you know, tell them what you care about. Um, and then if you have a little bit more time, you can go down to the district office, walk in there and, and actually have a face to face with one of those, those staffers. The sooner you start, the, the better, right? I mean, what I'm what I'm afraid of personally is that we're going to see people who just get complacent or just a normalizing of this this new this new world that we're in. Um, we need to start fighting now, right? And so, if you have time, yeah, call your member of Congress. It's not there. All the information is, is public. You can find a number, call them, and tell them that you care about. You know, tell them about what you care about. In the journalism, we sometimes say that getting like one letter to the editor is worth 10,000 people, right? Like there is sort of a calculus journalists do when they get feedback that kind of gives us a sense of how important something is. Did you have that kind of calculus as a staffer? Like if you got one phone call, did you sort of figure that? So that's worth maybe another that's actually representative of X number of people. Well, what's interesting is you you often didn't get a whole, I mean, yeah, the, the phone sometimes ring off the hook when, when there's a big vote uh, on, you know, in Congress. But 
But honestly, thinking about the number of people that a member of Congress uh, you know, represents, we didn't get that many people calling in or walking in. So when we did get mass calls on, on an issue, we really did take it seriously. We thought, oh, this is something that people really do care about. Um, but, but it was also when we had like a group of individuals who would come in, who would request a meeting and say, hey, uh, we are you know, constituents and we want to come and talk to you about about this vote that's coming up or about, you know, something that we care about. Um, you know, if that really, for us, that was a, a huge deal. Um, what wasn't that big of a deal, sometimes we'd get like a stack of postcards. They were all from, from constituents mm -hmm. uh, in, in our district, but they they were just, it, it just had their signature that another organization had mm -hmm. put them together and had done all the work. Those kinds of postcards didn't, didn't matter, right? It was hearing directly. Right from a constituent, hearing them in their voice that they cared about an issue, those things really far outweighed some of the other things that we saw. Um, and also on, on the letters, um, if, it's, if it's a handwritten letter, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean a lot more. Not just because the staffer is going to read it and say, wow, this, this person really put their, their, their time and effort into it, but it's that's, we, because it's so obvious that, that it's something that really matters to, to a person and then it sometimes would make it up to the member of Congress too. Thank you, Angel, for joining us. Um, good luck. No, thank you. We appreciate it. That was MTV senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox in conversation with Angel Padilla, one of the authors of The Indivisible Guide. week, something good happened, and in these times, for that, we should be grateful. The Future Cities Accelerator gave a million dollars away to 10 groups tackling problems faced by poor people in cities. It's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Unreasonable Institute, which will also give these winners support so they can scale up their ideas. Two winning organizations both tackle the process of applying for and keeping track of food stamps, our biggest safety net for the millions of American families that can't put food on their table. Podcast producers Michael Catano and Kasha Mihailovich interviewed two of the winners in Chicago and New York. Here's Kasha with a report that starts with the co-founder of an organization called M Relief. My name is Rose Afriye, and I am the executive director of M Relief. Um, and also, I just wanted to say um, that we are hiring, and so... If, um, if you are interested in joining our network of providing support to the people who are low income and need it uh, the most in America, uh, please feel free to visit our website at mrelief.com forward slash jobs. You might be interested in working for Rose after hearing her talk about the organization she co-founded. She's pretty persuasive and has a resume that includes a White House internship, a master's degree in public policy, and research on the market women in Ghana, the country where her family's originally from. It's also where she got the idea for the name M Relief. And the small M uh, before the name of an app in Sub-Saharan Africa means that there's text messaging. 32% of people in America are non-smartphone users, um, but we knew that almost 97% of people uh, who have a phone actually use text messaging. So we wanted to create parity with respect to having an online experience that would also exist through just a basic text messaging conversation. And the small M in M Relief is that implication that you can text M Relief to be able to find out that you qualify for a service that your family needs. 
Emrelief is a not-for-profit that uses basic mobile technology like SMS messages to make it easier for people to apply for essential social programs. Genevieve Nielsen is my co-founder, and we both met in coding school at the Starter League. And uh, after spending some time uh, really understanding uh, software development and programming, we became a part of the community here in Chicago that's called the Shy Hack Night. Um, And essentially, during that community's weekly meetings, uh, we learned that the city and lots of representatives within the city found that there were lots of challenges with social services delivery. Um, So uh, a program like rental assistance uh, could take as as long as uh, two hours just for someone to find out whether they qualified for the program, tons of different documents. It was just a really difficult uh, process. Uh, And so, uh, as a part of trying to really make that process more legible for families who needed these resources and supports, we built M Relief to help people understand whether they qualified for social services. And that's really how it all began. Applying for food stamps quickly became the most popular program that M Relief helped their users access. So in the state of Illinois, um, when you are trying to apply for food stamps, you often have to go through uh, a 90-minute phone call or an 18-page application and as many as 10 required documents uh, for each household member. So it was really important for us to help people find out if they qualify for the food stamp program uh, simply by texting them 10 simple questions, which take less than five minutes to answer. Um, and so for us, it was looking at these different parts of the program and first giving people the confidence to get through the entire process because they at least had a sense that they were likely eligible. So after a while, because I think, you know, families who are in poverty don't live single issue lives, right? Um So, but after a while, we wanted to really think about, given our capacity, given that we were a small nonprofit here in the city of Chicago, where could we make the most impact? And because there was such an overwhelming concentration on food stamps, um, we really wanted to go deeper with the food stamp program. So one of the things that we launched this year was a food stamp robot that would eliminate the whole time involved in trying to apply by phone. And so we did research um, just by setting up forwarding on our site to find out um, how long it would take people before they would abandon the process. And they were on the phone for a, a little under 30 minutes before they completely gave up. And we also found out that average times before someone would actually pick up the phone was about 58 minutes. So being on the phone for a whole hour (laughs) before you even are able to apply is very difficult for a user I spoke to uh, who is a single mom and a veteran in rural Illinois who only has 250 minutes on her phone plan every month. Um, And so for users like that, Emrelief was really answering a significant need uh, in being able to just develop tools that would only really call people when they had someone on the phone. This robot saved a lot of people a lot of time. So I know in 2016 alone, we've saved families 24,000 minutes in having to hold uh, by themselves. So that's a really huge um, uh, milestone for a limited, a very, very limited release. Um, and also, we've been able to connect 100,000 families to food stamps or other public supports that are really critical for a family to just get a little relief. So what's next for Emrelief now that they have this $100,000 grant? 
other than hiring one of our listeners? So I think really our focus is to go even deeper with food stamps uh, and forge ahead with a complete end-to-end process. So uh, due uh, to also uh, some supports that we've been able to receive, not just through the Rockefeller Foundation, but also the Knight Foundation, we've been focusing on the documents that people have to submit to the state. Um, so we know just through anecdotes that it can cost a family between 6 to $12 to navigate just the faxing and the copying and all of that. Um, and so we really look forward to being able to reduce the cost from, you know, about, uh, you know, 6 to $12 to $0. Really, we're just looking towards scale. We're now in 42 states uh, due to great uh, negotiations uh, that we've had with the USDA to release eligibility data sets. Um, But we want to go far beyond 100,000 users um, that we've been able to help connect to social services. We are really about addressing the $13 billion of unclaimed food stamp benefits in America due to just cumbersome processes. I think that uh, we are at a point, or we're at a really critical point, where there's even more technological milestones to make. Um, And I'm really, really excited about the Future Cities Accelerator Uh, specifically because of the knowledge and the expertise, but also because uh, they're coming into our organization at a time when they want us to really uh, be pushed on just reimagining and reinventing how we're doing user feedback right now. Um, And I think because our users are the closest to the problem, they're closest to the solution. And it's a really exciting time uh, to really be able to know more about how we can alleviate poverty. Rose and I have met up at a handful of these different types of events over the years, and I've been following their work fairly closely since they got started. Um, I think what they're doing is fantastic. Uh, I think it's a clear need that we noticed in the system as well. That's Jimmy Chen. The founder and CEO of Propel. M Relief is really focused on the on-ramps to social services, helping people get enrolled in things and understand whether or not they qualify. Propel is really focused on what happens to people once they get those benefits. Propel, like M Relief, is the winner of a $100,000 grant from the Future Cities Accelerator. So I grew up in a loving household that sometimes had trouble putting food on the table. Um, I ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to Stanford to study computer science and lived kind of a traditional Silicon Valley technology career. I was a product manager at, um, at LinkedIn and then Facebook uh, most recently, where I was a product manager for the Facebook Groups team. And I left Facebook in 2014 looking to apply the Silicon Valley technology playbook of building engaging, really well-designed software um, to solve social problems, and particularly to, to address some of the challenges faced uh, through poverty. We spent a lot of time at food stamp offices in the summer of 2014. and. There are hundreds of people um, all waiting to see a human social worker and fill out a paper form. And one thing we noticed was that most of those folks at the food stamp office had a smartphone in their hand passing the time. And what we saw from that moment on was just really an opportunity to apply the best practices of Silicon Valley that companies like Facebook use to build software um, to address some of these really deep problems around poverty faced by our users. 
Food stamps also seem like a good place to start for Propel. 45 million Americans are on food stamps right now, and about 55 to 60 million qualify at any given time. Um, some people don't understand that they qualify. Some uh, have chosen not to apply for various reasons, either the stigma around the program or a perception that the application is too hard. The food stamp program in America is actually officially known as the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Um, and our aim is to make that program more user-friendly in a variety of ways. We started Propel in 2014 building a website called Easy Food Stamps that worked a little bit like TurboTax for food stamps enrollment, so making it much easier to sign up. In many cases, being able to take a 27-page paper form and reducing it down to about five minutes on your smartphone. That was a core product of Propel for the first couple years that we were in existence. If you fast forward a couple of years, my COO and I were in a grocery store in Philadelphia trying to sign people up for food stamps using easyfoodstamps.com. And we kept hearing from people in the grocery store that, you know, thank you, but I'm already on food stamps. I'm here to spend my benefits. So eventually we asked, okay, how do you spend your benefits? And the first woman we spoke to said, well, I called the phone number on the back of my EBT card. We said, okay, can you do that for us? She called the phone number, and before listening to the automated uh, prompt, she pressed one and then three and then typed in her entire EBT card number purely from memory. We said, that's amazing. How did you do that? She said, well, this is how I check my balance to find out how much I can spend on food for my kids. So I do it every day. Um, that was really the impetus for why we built Fresh EBT uh, was because our, you know, one of the, the company philosophies of Propel has been to apply the best practices of the private sector to solve these kind of social sector problems. And uh, every major bank in the United States has, a, has kind of a free smartphone app where you can check your balance and see your transaction history. Um, the fact that that didn't exist for Americans receiving food stamp benefits uh, meant that we think that, the, you know, we thought that there was a clear gap and a clear opportunity to provide a lot of value. So, um, uh, Fresh EBT has been downloaded 400,000 times across the country. It's used by about 230,000 people each month. Um, every day, we save about three months of human time by having people use the app instead of call this phone line. And, uh, you know, we think that we're only scratching the surface, right? Uh, of the 45 million Americans on food stamps, we estimate that about 70% of them have smartphones. Um, so there are about... Uh, about 16 million households that could be using Fresh EBT. We've got about 400,000 of them that have downloaded the app, so there's a giant gap and a lot of room for us to grow. And of course, since this is a tech company founded by someone who used to work at Facebook, Jimmy's been mining the data his users provide to find out some pretty interesting stuff. Unlike Emrelief, Propel isn't a not-for-profit, it's a business. And Jimmy hopes that other companies will start to see food stamp users as a big business opportunity. We think one of the most powerful pieces of data that we have from our users is the fact that Fresh EBT users spend about $70 million per month on groceries at grocery stores. We think they represent a significant amount of purchasing power in the American grocery industry. And a big part of both our business and our social impact is we want grocery manufacturers and retailers to take notice of the role that food stamp recipients play in their business and to better market their products and services towards those users by offering them uh, cheaper prices on higher quality food. And so I think that's some of the most valuable data that we can produce is to, uh, to really uh, make clear the role of our users as grocery shoppers in the American economy. I asked how Propel guards against food stamp fraud, something a lot of people talk about even though there's little evidence that it's widespread. Still, the FDA estimates that one cent of every SNAP dollar is trafficked, as they call it. That's when a store exchanges a food stamp for money instead of food. Um, 
you know, the question of fraud in food stamps comes up quite a bit, but in many cases, it's really, uh, it obscures the fact that there are tens of millions of Americans for whom this benefit is a critical part of their day-to-day uh, food purchasing, and these are families that, that use the benefit exactly as intended. The average tenure of somebody on the program is nine months, and so that paints a picture of food stamps in America not as the kind of thing that somebody's using for an entire lifetime, but really as a temporary safety net as intended to get back on your feet when you have a financial shock. Jimmy also wanted to point out another misconception about food stamp users that you might remember Rose Achie from Emberleaf mentioning. It's that food stamp users have lots of time. One of the ways we think about fresh EBT and the value that we can provide is that by simplifying and streamlining these services that our users use, by just saving them five minutes a day, we are slightly, you know, we're helping to, to add time back into a really busy schedule um, that, that kind of helps our users make ends meet at the end of the day. I think there's kind of a common misperception that people on food stamps uh, really just don't have money, but they have a lot of time. We found that, uh, you know, that's just not the case. Our users uh, often, in, in, in many cases, lack both time and money. And these trade-offs between time and money are some of the hardest decisions for them to make. And so we really see our role as, as kind of helping both of those things. If we can help a user save time and save money, I think we've been uh, successful at the end of the day. So what's Jimmy and Propel going to do with their $100,000 grant? Um, we're really interested in using the Future Cities funding to hire an additional software engineer to help us scale out our technology team um, that will allow us to reach more Americans who are on food stamps with this product faster. We're building Propel as a venture-backed software company, which means that our vision for Propel is that there actually is a way for us to both scale our user base and scale our our company's revenue. Um, we think that Propel uh, is on a billion dollar opportunity. And as crazy as, as that sounds, we think that when you look at the magnitude of the problem in the United States, um, you know, that there are 45 million Americans who spend uh, $70 billion per year through the food stamp program. There's an opportunity to make that uh, substantially more efficient in a way that provides um, both a lot of social opportunity as well as a lot of financial opportunity for Propel the company. When I talk about the safety net, I really mean something more broad than the traditional notion of government services that somebody applies to when they need help. I think in America, the safety net uh, is comprised of both government services and nonprofit services, as well as the private sector services that someone depends on when they need financial help. Um, and I think the Future Cities Accelerator is a great way for us to connect to, uh, to companies in all three of those different sectors that are doing the types of things that our users should stay connected to. That was Rosa Frie, co-founder of Emrelief, and Jimmy Chen, co-founder of Propel, two of the 10 winners of this year's Future Cities Accelerator. You can find them and the other winners at futurecitiesaccelerator.org. I'm Julianne Ross, and those are the stakes. Get out there, take action, and thanks for listening. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Cotano, Mukta Mohan, James T. Green, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. <laughs>